Thank you so much, Heavenly Father. You are the Holy One. Thank you for those wonderful things we've just been able uh, to sing about. That day that we, we long for, when death will be no more. And we will join in the resurrection, joining with countless others, singing songs of praise to you. Thank you that you are trustworthy in all your promises. You are faithful in all that you do. Help us tonight to know that by your Spirit be at work in us, particularly as we come to your word now. If we ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. Amen. I'm pleased to have a seat. And just been seeing, haven't we? Of, of <laughs> just that wonderful day. Death will be no more. Every tear wiped away. And yet we live in a world that's broken, in a world where we face the news of people dying, people in our own church community recently who died of, of Ken and of death, and struggles in our own lives. And yet Jesus has something for us. He speaks into that. And what he says today, I think, will speak into that. Sorry, Steve, if I've just teed you up with the wrong sermon, but hopefully you'll be all right. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 13 this evening. Good evening to you all. It's lovely to see you, or just about. Um, thank you very much, Tom, for that really helpful intro. That is roughly where we'll be going this evening as we look at Luke uh, 13 together. But I wanted to start uh, with this question that's going to pop up on the screen, uh, hopefully any moment now, which is, why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever found yourselves saying that before? Maybe you've said it in a, in a kind of joking kind of way. You've just made the, the perfect cup of coffee. There it is in front of you. You've lovingly handcrafted it. And just as you're going to sit down to enjoy it, you spill it all over you. Nightmare. Why do bad things happen to good people? Or, or maybe it's your team losing that key game in the season. Or maybe you've just stubbed your toe. Why do bad things happen to good people? Or maybe you found yourself saying that phrase in a much more serious circumstance. Personal illness, serious injury, or maybe a, a painful breakup. A sudden and unexpected change of plans. Losing that job. The diagnosis that no one wants to hear. Or maybe even the loss of a friend, a family a member, or even an, an unborn child. Why do bad things happen to good people? It's a big question, a really big question. Perhaps one of the biggest questions we'll ever wrestle with in our lives. And if we're Christians here this evening, followers of Jesus, well maybe this question is one that causes you to doubt most. Why do bad things happen to good people? In fact, it's such a big question that it's, that it's one that has, have, has had people wrestling with it for thousands of years. In fact, it's the very question that is being asked in our chapter of Luke's Gospel that we're looking at this evening. In Luke 13, if you've got it open in front of you, that's going to be uh, really helpful for us this evening. In Luke 13, we see this crowd around Jesus. And this question, well, it's in the air. They've just received news of events that have taken place in Galilee, where 
Jewish worshippers were in the temple making animal sacrifices. And what happens next? Well, Roman troops under Pilate, they come in and they kill many of the worshippers there. We're told very graphically, aren't we, in verse 1, that their blood was mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. It's a shocking event that has much of Israel discussing this exact question. Why do bad things happen to good people? In light of this calamity, this suffering, well, they rationalize what's taken place by concluding that if something bad has happened, well, it must be because those who are suffering are those who have done something wrong. If we can't make sense of bad things happening to good people, well, then we can look to change the equation, can't we? And we can change it to this. Bad things happen to bad people. And that way, we can finally have a sense of relief. There is some consistency in this world. It's a a sense of that scale being balanced. Karma, right? And maybe we we might pat ourselves on the back as well, because if that's true, then the opposite must also be true, that good things happen to good people. It's a relief. Or at least it is until something bad happens to us or to someone we know and love. Now, where there was once relief, now there is not only suffering to endure, there is also the judgment from others because, well, if they're suffering, then there must be sin. And very quickly, we can appreciate, can't we, that this way of thinking is not a relief at all. It's horrible. It's evil. It blames the victim and pushes down those already struggling under suffering, pushes them down that much lower. Well, Jesus, he recognizes all this, and he responds to the crowd by giving his ethic on suffering. We see in the following few verses, Jesus' teaching on suffering and how it can be applied to us and to our circumstances that we find ourselves in today. Well, Jesus answers the crowd in verse 2. He says, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. Jesus makes it crystal clear that direct personal suffering is not as a result of personal sin. He applies the, the question directly to those killed in the temple in Galilee and asks, were they worse sinners than everyone else? Was their sin what caused them to be slain by those soldiers? No, I tell you, no. If Jesus were were making this case into an equation, well, he would stress that personal sin does not equal personal suffering. And this is really important for us all this evening to grab and to get a hold of. Because Jesus knows that there are two types of people listening to what he's saying here, both in the crowd around him and in his church today. One person is the type of person who has lived a pretty comfortable life, a carefree life, who believes that suffering is as a result of sin, of the wrong, of the personal wrong in someone's life. There's real pride there, a sense of, of self 
righteousness. I'm a good person, and so life is good. I'm not like them. To them, though, Jesus says, no, no. Their sins are no greater than yours. You've got the equation all wrong. And then there's the the other type of person, the conscientious sufferer. Those who've had to battle with ill health or loss or grief. And they believe that in some way they are suffering because of what they've done, how they've lived. That sin is a result of, of that suffering is a result of the sin in their lives. And unlike that first group full of pride, well, they are crushed by grief and guilt. And again, Jesus says to them, no, you've got the equation all wrong. This, uh, this past week, uh, on Thursday, I think it was, we were looking at Psalm 34 together as a staff theme. And verse 18 in that psalm, well, it beautifully captures God's heart for those who are suffering. It says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Saves those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus' ethic, his teaching on suffering here, well, it takes the weight off of the shoulders of all those who are burdened by that sense of guilt and shame as they suffer. It's such an important point. And, and it's such an important point that Jesus, well, he points to another real-life example of this question played out. Another desperately sad incident that had taken place. Jesus says in, in verse 4, Or how about those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? It's a similar question, a similar scenario. A number of people unexpectedly killed as this tower just outside of Jerusalem falls. And the same question is once again in the air. Why? Is the answer their sin, their evil actions? Is this divine judgment? Were these 18 individuals greater sinners than all those in Jerusalem on that day when that tower fell? But once again, Jesus couldn't be clearer. It's the exact same response. I tell you, no. Whether a man-made tragedy or a natural disaster, Jesus' equation stands. Whether Galilee or Jerusalem, slaying soldiers or tumbling towers, Jesus says it doesn't matter. Personal sin does not equal personal suffering. And for us today, we need to make sure that we've taken this to heart, that we aren't too quick to judge the sufferings of others. When we turn on the news and we hear, well, we hear of the war being raged, uh, waged, when we hear of missile strikes, we need to ensure that we do not judge, that we do not equate the personal suffering to, to the personal sin of those whose lives have been ravaged by conflict. But also closer to home as well, when those around us in our lives and in the life of the church experience struggles and pain and loss, we need to remember Jesus' equation, his ethic on suffering. 
And when we undergo, when we personally undergo periods of suffering ourselves, we need to go back to Jesus' words here. It's not as a result of the personal sin in our life. So that's Jesus' uh, ethic on suffering, and it's one that liberates the burdened. But we also see here Jesus's. Uh, oh, we don't see here because the clicker stopped working. Let's try off and on. See if that's going to help us. Liz, I might need you to click on for me if that's okay. Was it the laptop? No, it's not the laptop. It's just a clicker. Fantastic. We also see in these verses Jesus's warning. Oh. Oh. Interesting. Exciting. There we go. Maybe it's just me. I think it's just me. (laughs) We also see in these verses, it's Jesus' warning. Now, we've had these two examples of suffering. And we've had Jesus' clear teaching that this is not as a result of personal sin. But with each of those episodes, we also get a repeated warning. Did you spot them? They're in verse 3 and 5. Did those killed in the temple suffer because of their sin? I tell you, no, verse 3, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Did those crushed in, uh, by the tower suffer because of their sin? Verse 5, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus says, don't judge others. Instead, repent. Why? Because this is a matter of life and death. Unless we repent, we will all perish. There's a strong warning here. But with this this stern and serious warning, Jesus again, well, he's changing the equation. Because having made it clear that personal uh, sin, I'm very struggling with clicker, there we go. Having made it clear that personal sin does not equal personal suffering, Jesus wants to make it crystal clear that universal sin, well, it does equal universal suffering. Now, you might be wondering, what on earth do I mean by this? Well, here we begin to see the answer to those big questions that we started with around suffering. Because if suffering isn't down to an individual messing up and their sin, then why is there suffering in the world? To answer this, we have to go back, right back, even further back, all the way back to the very beginning, to creation as it was intended to be, to a world that was without war, without famine, without cancer, without death, a tearless paradise. That was the world that God created. But into that world, humanity chose to rebel against God, to reject his good rule and elevate themselves above him. Humanity brought sin into the world. And with it, that tearless paradise was lost. And in its place was a world marred with suffering, the world that we know today. We exist in a broken world, a a sin-shaped world. And so in that that general, universal sense, sin, sin as the the humanity uh, rejecting God at the fall, well, that does equal suffering, the suffering of living in a broken world. And in light of this universal sin, we will all face suffering in some form 
or another in the here and now. But even more seriously, we will, we're told here, we will all perish. We will all die. I wasn't here this morning, but I understand uh, we were looking at Romans uh, 6, which says the wages of sin is death. Death, that eternal separation from God, the one who we have rebelled against and rejected. And so Jesus wants to allow suffering, the suffering of this broken world, to wake us up, to open our eyes to the, to the desperate reality of our situation. Why? Because this is a matter of life and death. Unless we repent, we will all perish. That's a strong warning here. As we think about this warning and how we might respond, well, it reminds me a little bit of a a smoke detector. Imagine a a fair few of us here this evening are are perhaps a little bit flippant when it comes to smoke detectors. Maybe we've uh, been tempted to use the batteries from them for the TV remote when that dies. Or if it starts bleeping in the night to tell you that the batteries are low, maybe you just unplug it and, and you'll sort it out when you next get round to it. But imagine if on your street, just a few doors down, there is a big fire and smoke is pouring out of the windows, the flames raging higher and higher, and the house, well, is absolutely gutted. Everything lost, the property is ruined. What's your response? Is it to think, oh, well, they must have made a mistake somewhere. They left the iron on or the hair straighteners. How silly they are that they didn't check their smoke alarm. It is on them. Is that our response? Or is our first response immediately to go and check our own smoke alarms? If it happened to them, well, it could happen to us. Am I ready? Well, that captures how Jesus wants us to respond to the suffering we see around us. Not to judge others, but to hear the warning and to repent. As Jesus is speaking here, he's saying, forget about them. Forget about the others. How about you? Are you ready? Have you repented? You, you, you. Jesus says you in this passage eight times in these verses. And so it's, I think, pretty clear what he's getting at. It's easy to look at the struggles that others face and to look to find a fault in them for the explanation. But the response that we should have, Jesus says, is to see the suffering around us and to hear the warning. But hearing the warning alone isn't enough, is it? We have to put the batteries back in the smoke alarm. We have to respond. And here we are called to to heed suffering's warning and to respond. How? With repentance. Jesus says, unless you repent, you too will all perish. But what does it actually mean to repent? I think it's one of those Christianese lingo words that we often use, but maybe don't think about as much as uh, we should do. Well, When it comes to repentance, it's that complete U-turn, a complete change in direction, if you like. Some images that might help you uh, to think this through are going to be up on the screen in just a moment and uh, some four R's as well to go along with repentance. The first one is to recognize. It's to recognize and to appreciate 
our guilt. True repentance involves that sense of awareness of our guilt, of how sinful and helpless we are. But it also involves receiving, taking hold of grace in Jesus, taking hold of God's mercy, accepting that gift. And it also involves rejecting, turning away from our sin. True repentance means a change of attitude with a renewed heart. And it's an action regarding sin. It's a hatred of sin that turns the repentant person from going down that sinful path and turns them the other way completely towards God. And that's then the, the, the fourth R, which is that radical pursuit of walking with God. True repentance results in a radical and persistent pursuit of holy living, walking with God in our everyday lives. Repentance then, well, it's that complete U-turn from heading away from God to walking with God via the cross. In these verses, Jesus says, hear the warning, see the suffering that comes with a broken world, and repent. And ultimately repent whilst you still can, because time is short. In the final few verses of our passage this evening, Jesus tells a story, a parable to drive this truth home. And we see in this story Jesus' grace. Let me read it again for us in verse 6. Jesus tells this story. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, Leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Now the point of Jesus' parable isn't to to take each detail and to try and match it up to a specific truth, but rather to take the one big thing that comes out of the story and apply it to our lives. That's how Jesus' parables work. Well, who here is into uh, gardening, I wonder. Anyone here into gardening in particular? I know there's a few people. Mm-hmm. Tom, you're kind of into gardening, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. So I imagine there's a few green fingers in the building this evening. I wonder what do you like to grow, whether it's vegetables or fruit or things that just look nice, whatever it might be. If you had been waiting in your garden for three long years for that strawberry, that apple, that first flower, what would you do? going to cut it out, right? You're not going to wait three long years of using up precious space in your beautiful borders or in that um, patch at the end of your garden where the tree is. No, you're going to cut it down. You're going to cut it out. It's going to go in the bin. It's got to go. Here we see that this fig tree is dead. It's good for nothing, useless. Zero figs in three long years. But amazingly, this gardener says... Well, no, wait, give me one more year and wait and see. And this this simple story, well, it beautifully captures God's heart toward us. It captures Jesus' grace, this free gift which is being offered to those who have rejected him, rebelled against him, 
And even after we continually refuse to accept that gift again and again, saying we don't need Jesus, we're fine by ourselves, even then, Jesus says, wait. Give them a little bit longer to respond, a little bit longer to repent. That's what Jesus does for us. He offers us this gift of grace, of life instead of death. And we simply have to receive it. That's all we have to do. And graciously, he gives us the time now to respond. But there will come a point when that time is up, when God will come again in judgment. The gardener says in the story, if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. A point is coming when the time for repenting is past and the time for judgment will be at hand. And it is right for God to judge and it is merciful of him to wait. Last week when Tom was uh, taking us through the end of Luke 12, we heard how Jesus is the one who has come to bring fire. We saw how this was actually a good thing. Good in that there will be justice done at last in an unjust world, but how we will have to recognize that judgment is coming and that time is short. We are now in that time with God wonderfully, graciously waiting for us to respond and to repent. But will we repent whilst we still can? Will we turn to Jesus, turn from our sin, and turn to God through the cross? Human suffering around us, on the news, in our lives, well, it should, it should drive us to take this, this warning seriously, to hear the warning that time is short, that we need to respond, that we need to repent. And if we're here this morning, and we have heard the warning of a suffering world, and we have turned to Jesus for hope and for life, then we, I guess, do we also need to recognize and appreciate just how lost and hopeless those without him are? For those of us uh, in the church planting team, there's some of us here this evening, we've been meeting as a community group now for the last uh, three or so weeks as a part of Living Hope Church Thermiston. Uh, And increasingly, as we've met together to study God's word, we've been amazed not just by how much God has done for us, but in turn, we've been given a greater sense of of just how lost the people of Thermiston are without him. So for all of us here this evening who know and love and follow Jesus, we have to make the most of the time that we have. It's precious time but it is also short. We need to make the most of what God has given us and point others, the lost, to the grace and to the love and to the life that we know in Christ. Let me pray for us with that in mind. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for that free gift of grace that you offer to us. That it is not the good who live good lives, Father, but it is Uh, those who are lost in sin, who receive that gift of grace and life. Lord, help us all to recognize this evening that time is short, to hear the warning of a broken world that suffers. And Father, in response to that, to turn to you again, to walk with you instead of walking in our sin. 
help us to receive that gift of grace if we haven't done that here this evening. And for all of us who are here and who are living in the light, who are walking with you by love, Father, help us to point others to that wonderful truth as well, to use the time that you have given us to point others to the hope that we have. Lord, help us in this, we pray for your glory. Amen. Amen.